Well, we are starting this new series on Ecclesiastes, and this is a this is a book that it's it's kind of difficult to read at times because it's very philosophical, um, and we'll kind of we'll spend some time using some terms that you may or may not have heard. I'm going to try not to be too heady. Um, I know sometimes I, I get a, I tr- use terminology that. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't use, maybe I belong in a lecture hall instead of a pulpit, I don't know. But um, Ecclesiastes is a book of philosophy, specifically it talks about the secular philosophy of the world and what it means to come up against that from a biblical, from a, a, a Christological and, and theological lens. Um, and it's extremely, it's an extremely important book for the today. Because a lot of the philosophies, the worldviews that you see in the book of Ecclesiastes are the same things that are being spoken today, are the same things that are being touted today in the secular world. And if we're going to be able to stand against some of them, if we're going to be able to stand firm on our faith against them, we have to be able to study them and, and to know what it means to submit to God amidst some of these Worldviews, and so um, th- this the series is going to be entitled "Under the Sun" um, because the, this is a, a phrase that is used over and over again in Ecclesiastes. Nothing is new under the sun, and there everything is the same under the sun. There's this reoccurring theme that basically under the sun is talking about worldly things. That that in life, in this world, in this existence, here is the way you are to think, or here's the way everyone thinks, or here's the wisdom of the world under the sun. Um, and so we're going to be studying this book. We're going to be kind of going through it for the next few weeks. Um, and this morning, we're going to see what it means to look at the world through a secular lens and how we're to come up against that. How we're to, to not necessarily refute that, although we do refute that, but what it means to live in a world that looks at everything through a secular lens and, and what lens, what our lens should look like. So with all that being said, let's, let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll jump on in this morning. Father God, let your voice be heard today. Now there, there are a lot of truths in this book that, that are very important for our lives. A lot of lessons to be learned in a, in a world that is broken, that is falling apart, that, that is not meant to last eternally, God. And so as we are living here in this fallen world, help us to glean from your word ways that we are to submit to you and follow you so that we don't feel like we're drowning in a world that is broken and corrupt. So give us wisdom this morning, God. Let your voice be heard and and speak through this message. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So as we're starting this Series and, and beginning this study on a, a book of the Bible that is is most commonly associated with with Hebraic. That means Hebrew wisdom and philosophy. We're going to have to employ a few philosophical terms that you may or may not have used before. And the first of these is is the term hedonism. And if you've never heard that term hedonism, it it's a a term that um, depending on how you believe or how you associate history. It was either first coined by a guy named Democritus in 460 to 370 BC, um, or 
as we'll see today, it actually can go farther back than that. Just think about Democritus, though. That, that's, the Greek names are so much more, so much cooler than our names today. You know, I don't know. That, I just thought about that as I was talking. That's where my train of thought went. Anyway, Democritus is the first guy to kind of start writing about hedonism and give a name to hedonism, which is just the ethical belief that the only meaning in life is to do what gives you pleasure. That because there is no other purpose in life, because there is no other big picture in life, that what we are to do as we live out our life is to find whatever fulfills our desires. Whatever gives us happiness, whatever gives us pleasure, whatever brings us joy, that is how we are to live life. That's hedonism, is do whatever makes you happy. And a lot of philosophers will say that Democritus was the first guy to coin this, but he might have been the first guy to coin it, but you can go back to the Sumerians, you can go back to the Egyptians. The oldest culture in the world has this philosophy, because this is human philosophy, from, from the moment that Adam and Eve fell against God, it was because they desired something other than God. And so a hedonistic lifestyle, that's not something that was, it might have first been coined by this guy in, in Greece, but it's a part of human life. Hedonism is a, a, a desire to do what you want to do, a desire to find happiness and to live your entire life based on the search for joy. And, and, Whatever it is that makes you happy is fine. And, and that is the undergirding worldview philosophy that has governed humanity for ages. And if you say, well, that's not really true today. You know, we do stuff for other people all the time. Even if you're not a Christian, you, you still live for other people. And, and that's true. But at the same time, there is this undergirding hedonistic ideal that is present in the modern world. And, and we might not label it as such, but it's there. And you see it in all sorts of things. For example, I, I was reading some statistics the other day, and I came across this statistic that says that a lot of Gen Z and millennials are leaving the workforce, not because they don't want to work, but because their work doesn't bring them joy. That they're not be feeling happy in their work. Now, you might look at that and say, well, that's stupid. Why are they doing that? Or, or, or maybe you're like, well, yeah, I don't want to work in a, a dead-end job that doesn't bring me happiness. And, and the, the truth is, that when I was growing up, I was told, find, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. And that makes a lot of sense. But now, that's being brought into the world from this hedonistic lens that if you're doing something you don't love, don't do it. Just gather unemployment because, you know, at least you love not doing anything. Uh, but that's hedonism coming into the world. And, and it's not massive hedonism. No one's going to say, you know, live a hedonistic lifestyle and gather unemployment. You know, that's, no one's going to say that. But that, at the same time, that is undergirding a lot of the decisions we make. Do what makes you happy. You know, find joy in life. Do every, no matter what, be happy in life. And if it doesn't make you happy, then don't do it. You know, if, if, if you find a job that doesn't make you happy, just don't work. And, and that's just, that's not good for society. That's not good for who you are. That's not what we're called to do as humans. But that's hedonism. And there's so many other aspects in life that this sort of philosophy has found its way in. And the entire basis of this philosophy 
is based off of what the teacher in Ecclesiastes starts his entire book off, that life is meaningless. And so if life is meaningless, the only meaning that we can try to ascribe to life is be happy. Do what makes you happy. Do what brings you pleasure. If life is pointless, if life is meaningless, if life is fleeting, then in your time here, just be happy. And if you're doing something that doesn't make you happy, don't do it anymore. That is hedonism. And maybe the writer of Ecclesiastes didn't coin the term hedonism. Maybe it was this Greek guy with a cool name. But he sure does write about it. And cultures and human civilization have lived out this for all of thousands of years, for all of human history. And if we have lived out this sort of hedonistic lifestyle, and if hedonism has been present all since human civilization began, we would have to assume that if it was true, if this was the proper way to live, then there would be no unhappiness in the world. Right? If, if hedonism, if living a life, if, if looking at life as the entire purpose of life, since it is meaningless, is do what makes you happy, if that was the correct way to live, then there would no longer be happiness, there would no longer be unhappiness in the world. The world would be filled with happy people. Now, is that how you would describe the world? That it's filled with happy people, that you walk down the street and he's happy and he's happy and he's happy and he's happy, all because they live a hedonistic lifestyle? No. You know, you might find people that, that, aren't, that are secularists, that, that, that don't believe in God, that don't believe in anything, that believe that the purpose of life is to be happy. And they might say they're happy on the surface, but if you really get to know them, they're not. They're not. Living a life searching for happiness, searching for joy, searching for pleasure for the sake of finding those things will never bring true happiness, will never bring true joy. It will just bring hollowness because the truth is if it did the world would be a lot different now the world would be filled with happy people the world would be filled with people who aren't having to constantly search for joy so with all this being said about hedonism and about this this desire to serve yourself in order to find pleasure in order to find joy and the fact that it doesn't work now, what does Ecclesiastes teach us about coming up against this worldview? What, what, what does, what does the, the, the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes tell us about how we are to live a life that directs us to what is happy, to what is pleasurable, to what does bring joy, that directs us to the sovereign God of all? How do we live this way amidst a secular world that tells us the only meaning in life is that you find joy no matter what it takes to find joy. How do we live a life where we see God and we find joy in glorifying and worshiping him? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, we're going to be kind of moving just through this, these first 11 verses and actually the end of the book today. Before we really dig into these 11 verses, we have to first start with the structure of the book. Because a lot of times, in order to do true exegesis, in order to really dig into Scripture and know what Scripture is saying, it's important that we understand how Scripture is written. It's important that we understand the structure of a book. If you just turn to Ecclesiastes and you start reading everything, you just turn to the first two verses and you see absolute futility, everything is futile. 
meaningless. Everything is meaningless. You're going to think, well, God is telling us that everything is meaningless. But you have to really do exegesis. You have to dig into the structure of the book. You have to understand how it was written, how it was structured, how it was formatted in order to know the point that is being made in the book. So to show you this, listen to the, the opening of the book, the very first verse, and also the very end of the book. In verse 1, it says, these are the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. So what we know from the, from the very beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes is what is about to be said are things that are coming from a specific teacher, coming from someone who is a son of David, someone who has ruled over Israel. That's what we know. All of these sayings in here are from a teacher, most likely Solomon. Most, all of church history is attributed this to Solomon. But then when we go to the back of the book, we learn something else. That the sayings of the book are from Solomon, but the person who put the book together was not Solomon. At the end of the book, it says, in addition to the teacher being a wise man, this is chapter 12, verses 9 through 12. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned, there is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. Now, what you're seeing here is an editor's note that the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon didn't compile the book himself. He didn't just write it down from start to finish. The book of Ecclesiastes is a compilation. It's a book of sayings. It's a book of wisdom sayings that are from Solomon, that are from this teacher. But the point isn't the sayings themselves. The point is what the editor has to say about these sayings that are given to us by Solomon. And that's what we have to keep in mind, that the, 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 the opening verse, that everything is meaningless... That's not the point. That's the secular saying that is being made in all of the world. The point is what the editor has to say against this saying. So just keep that in mind as we go through this series. Keep in mind that this is an edited compilation of teachings, and the purpose isn't the teaching in and of themselves, but the way through a theological lens we are able to refute these secular teachings. But... We have to keep in mind that all of these secular teachings, they are based in hedonism. They're based in this philosophy that life brings, that the purpose of life is to find pleasure. That is the base philosophy that undergirds so many of these teachings. Not all of them, but many of them. That the purpose of life, since life is meaningless, do what makes you happy. Do what brings you pleasure. That's the secular ideal for the world if you don't have god if you don't worship god if you don't fear god if you don't submit to god what else do you have to do other than say i'm going to do what makes me happy i'm going to do what brings me pleasure and i'm going to search for happiness and search for pleasure for the sake of finding those things ecclesiastes is a compilation of these types of teachings and it shows the futility of this type of teaching it shows the fact even though there's all sorts of secular teachings that teach this way, they're all futile. None of them bring everlasting happiness. 
None of them bring an everlasting joy. None of them bring an everlasting satisfaction. It might be the most prominent teaching in the world. These teachings on hedonism might have existed from the start of human civilization and will go on to the end of human civilization, but they don't bring eternal joy. And this compilation of of these teachings in the book of Ecclesiastes shows us their futility. And we see that very quickly. I mean, from the very opening section of the book, the teacher, um, which, you know, I, the, the, the word Ecclesiastes comes from the Hebrew word uh, kohalith, which is, just means teacher, doesn't mean, or preacher of the assembly. And the teacher, as he is writing the very opening, as Solomon is, as the editor is writing down what Solomon says from the very beginning, he says, This is what the teacher has told us. This is what this really wise guy, this teacher of wise sayings, this king of Israel, this son of David, this is what he has told us. Absolute futility. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. And and that's an important, that that second verse there where where you have all that repetition, that's extremely important. Because in, in Hebrew writing, in order to give emphasis, it's not given by writing something in big, bold letters with an exclamation point. It's not, there, there's not really um, words that are added to, like you wouldn't say, that is very good. There's not really a word for very. It's just repetition. You say the same word over and over again. If you say the same word twice, you're giving significance to that word. And so what is being said here is, if it reads literally, it would be futile, futile, says the teacher. Futile, futile, everything is futile. That's how it would read in Hebrew. That over and over again, this teacher is saying, everything is pointless. Life is meaningless. You get nothing from it. It, it, it is without, it's fruitless. And he reiterates that over and over and over and over again. And then the, the entire section of these 11 verses hits on that. He says, what does a person gain for all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. Panting, it returns to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north. Turning, turning goes the wind and the wind returns in its cycles. And all the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, they all flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. Now, if you read these verses, what you would say is, this teacher is a very depressed fellow. I mean, he, he just has a very, he's not a glass half full kind of guy. He's just not. But that is what you have when you look at life through a secular lens. You cannot look at life. Even from a hedonistic view where you say the point, the, the, the whole goal of life is to live a happy, pleasurable life, you'll still look at life as meaningless. There is no point to it. It's futile. And this is the kind of thing 
that this teacher, this wise teacher who has lived, who has acquired all these sayings, this is what he has realized. That everything is meaningless. And even living from this base hedonistic lifestyle where you live life to find joy and pleasure is meaningless. Now, I want to give two other philosophical words. Maybe you know, maybe don't. One is the word ontology. And one is the word teleology. The word ontology means the philosophical study of being, meaning it's the study of the person, of the individual person. The word teleology is the philosophical explanation of purpose. So you, one is the, the, the study of who you are, and the other is the study of the purpose you serve. Now, the reason I bring those words up is because the teacher hits on these things. And in, in verses 2 and 3, he hits on the purpose. And he says, basically, our teleology, our purpose is pointless. He says, what does a person gain for his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation comes, a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. He's saying that what you do in life doesn't matter. It's meaningless. Yeah, there, there is no purpose to life, but there's also no there's no purpose to your individual life. There's nothing that you can do that gives any significance. Your teleology, your purpose for living is pointless. But then he goes on in, in verses 8 through 11, not only is your purpose, is your goal pointless, but he says your entire being is pointless. He says, um, there is no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after, there will be no remembrance by those who followed them. What he's emphasizing here is not only as you live your life, as you try to find purpose in life, is it not going to be possible, but he's saying your entire being is pointless because no one's even going to remember you. That you're just going to go into dust and, and who you are is just a bag of meat and bones that is going to decay. <laughs> So it's one thing to read this and see that he's a half glass full or a half glass empty kind of guy. It's another thing to read this again and see, man, he just like finds no joy in life. The glasses doesn't even have anything in it for the teacher. But now think about this from a modern view. If you ask an atheist, a secularist, what's going to happen when they die? Well, I don't know. I'm going to go in the ground. I'll start to decay, and then I'll become nothing. <laughs> Doesn't that sound a lot like what the teacher said? If you ask an atheist or a secularist what the purpose is of living, they might say something like, well, it's to, to, to help out other people or, you know, to, you know to, to better society. But that's just a cop-out. Because if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in um, objective morality, then why live that way? If you don't believe that there is one morality that all people are to follow, then why would you live morally? Why would you seek to help others? The entire basis of your life is to serve yourself. And so at the same time, to be an atheist, to be a secularist, it falls apart. There's no purpose to life. There's no meaning to life. It all falls apart. And that's what the teacher is saying here, that from a secularist perspective, from a perspective that you are just this bag of meat that is floating around by chance in the universe is meaningless. There is no significance. There is no meaning. There is no point to life if that is the way 
you center your life. C.S. Lewis is the author of a lot of uh, popular kids' books, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and uh, that whole series there. And so he's mainly known for a lot of those things. But he was also arguably the greatest Christian philosopher of the 20th century. And, and he wrote a book called Mere Christianity that for a lot of theologians, a lot of my professors, um, if, they, they, if they're ever asked, you, you are going to live on an island the rest of your life and you can only take three books, the majority of them would say Mere Christianity. It's just a really profound and important book. And in this book... C.S. Lewis talks about one of the realizations that made him come to faith. One of the realizations of life that made him come to faith. And, and this is his quote. He says, my argument against God was the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. Meaning the reason he didn't want to believe in God is because he finally realized his outlook of a secular person. Life is meaningless. Life is pointless. It's chaotic, it's broken, it's unjust, and, and, and there's no reason to live. He came to this conclusion. Then he says, but how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a line that is straight. What, I was, what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Now, here's the point of that. A secularist is going to say all of the things that this teacher is saying in this opening book. He's going to say the world's meaningless. You know, we can try to live moral lives, but what's the point? You know, it's unjust. It's chaotic. There's no purpose to be served here at all. But how, do you, how can you understand that there's, everything is meaningless, everything is purposeless, purposeless, everything is cruel and unjust? How can you understand that unless you can conceptualize a life that does have meaning? A life that does have purpose. A life that is filled with justice. A life that is filled with goodness. You can't have the one understanding without there also being another understanding. That is what C.S. Lewis is saying. And that is what the author, the teacher is getting at here. From the surface, through a secular lens, everything is meaningless. Everything is pointless. Everything is cruel. Everything is unjust. Everything is pointless. But if you can say that through a secular lens, then you also have to admit that if you understand that everything is pointless, if you understand that everything is meaningless, if you understand that everything is unjust, then there also has to be a sense that everything can be just, that everything can have purpose, that everything can be good. You can't have the antithesis without having the actuality. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying here in his opening section of looking at life through a secular lens. Now, what do we do with this? If this is true, if C.S. Lewis is right, if Solomon is right, if everything is meaningless through a secular lens, but that meaninglessness through a secular lens points us to God, then what are we to do with that? How is that pointed to God? Listen to what the editor of the book of Ecclesiastes says here at the end. He says, beyond these sayings, my son, be warned, there's no end to the making of many books and much study wearies bodies. Meaning, what he's saying is, live your life through a secular lens, you're going to have lots of things that come up. You're going to come up with lots of theories. You're going to come up with a lot of inquisitive ideas. Life is going to make sense, 
or life isn't going to make sense, but you're going to come up with a lot of things that make sense in your head. But when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands. Because this is for all humanity, for God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Centering our existence and purpose in secular identities is meaningless. We see that clearly through the opening part of Ecclesiastes, that it is meaningless to center our existence and purpose in these secular identities. But what we see from the closing, what the editor comes to conclude through all of this looking at life through a secular lens is that our existence and our purpose meaning our ontology and our teleology only make sense when we center them on God. They only make sense if we center them on God. If we look at life through a secular lens, nothing will ever make sense. We can come up with all kinds of great ideas that might have a glimmer of truth within them, but they'll never be the full truth. They'll never fully make sense. The only way our existence and our purpose in life makes sense is if we center them on God. And that's what this book is teaching us. And because of that, it's an extremely important book for today. Because we live in an age where the entire basis for living is to serve yourself. The entire mentality of life. Hedonism has run rampant. And we might not go around proclaiming we're hedonists. But we are. The entire purpose of living is to serve yourself. And what the editor of Ecclesiastes is saying, what the, what, what the teacher is getting at is life is going to be meaningless if you live that way. You will never live a life of joy if you're only searching for joy in and of itself. You will never find a, a purpose in life if you're only trying to find a purpose in yourself. Meaning and purpose, joy and happiness will only find itself when they're rooted in God. It's the only way it's possible. I, I want to conclude this morning. There's this passage when Paul is writing to the, the church in Philippi. And this is towards um, the end of his life. He's already started a lot of imprisonments. And he's kind of writing on the state of, of the way he's lived out his life as an as a apostle, as a Christian. Listen to what he says here. This is uh, Philippians 1, uh, 20 and 21. He says, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by my life or by my death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. This is towards the end of his life where he's come to the realization that he's going to be martyred. And what does he say? He doesn't say, my life has been pointless and meaningless, and I'm about to be executed, and everything was for nothing. Paul has joy. Paul has satisfaction. Paul has realized that his life has had purpose and meaning and significance. It's not meaningless and fruitless and worthless. For me to live, Paul says, is for Christ. For me to die is a gain. 
You can't have that sort of mentality when you look at life through a secular lens. You can't say, I, I don't believe there's a God out there, but I believe that my life has a purpose and that everything I do is meaningful and that when I die, I have gain. You can't believe that because when you die, you decay if you believe that, that there is no God. You, if you live, you believe life is pointless because there's nothing else. But Paul has joy, a joy that, that cannot be quenched. When Paul writes in Philippians 4.13, this overly quoted verse of the Bible, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse isn't about being able to call on the name of, of God as if he's a genie and have some extra help to, uh, I don't know, score a touchdown or something. The point of that verse is Paul is talking about suffering. He's talking about living out a life of hardship throughout his entire life. And he says, I can do this. I can find joy in suffering. I can find satisfaction in hardship because I can do everything with Christ. My life has meaning because of Christ. My life has purpose because of Christ. My death is a gain because of Christ. And without him, it is meaningless. Without him, it is pointless. Without him, I'm nothing. Paul knows and understands joy simply through Christ alone. And Ecclesiastes, the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes teaches us that through a secular lens, you will never find what Paul finds in Christ. It will not be possible. Your life will always be meaningless. You can search for joy and search for pleasure all you want, and you might find little glimpses of it, but it will never, never fill you. It will never satisfy you. It will never quench your thirst. Only living for Christ, only having him in your life will fill that void, will give your life meaning, will give your life purpose. And Paul describes his ultimate goal as both living and, and dying to glorify God. And he finds joy in that. He finds purpose in that. And, and truthfully, that is the entire reason what we were created. That we were created to be God's image bearers, to literally reflect the glory of God back to him. And, and we dirtied that image. We marred that image. We corrupted that image with sin and falling away. And because of that, we lost our purpose and life became meaningless. But through Christ, that image has been restored. And Paul has understood that, and he knows that his life now has meaning because he can once again reflect the image of God and glorify God with his life and gain in his death. Now, the question is, this makes sense. It should make sense, hopefully, if you're a Christian. But how do we live this out? Because this is a, it's a lot harder to say, yeah, my, my entire purpose for being is to live for Christ and to die is gain. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to avidly seek to live it out. So here's three quick ways. First, slow down and treasure time with God. When we get in a rush, when we have a busy attitude, when we're always searching for joy in life, for satisfaction in life, when we're always looking for the next big thing, when we don't slow down, we become hedonists. We're searching for joy and pleasure in life. And we forget that as Christians, our joy and pleasure will only be filled in Christ. So slow down and treasure time with God. And secondly, here's a big one. Think about how you pray. 
Do you pray asking for things from God more than you pray to glorify God? When, when, we, when, when our prayer life is filled with asking for God to do this, to give me this, to help me with this, to do this for me, and it's all about me, 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 we're becoming hedonists. We're living a life of God's becoming a genie in a bottle. Give me this, God. Help me with this, God. Do this for me, God. And, and God wants to be there with us. God gave his life for us. But remember, when Christ has renewed us, it's not so that we can now have everything we want in this life. It's so that we can now fulfill the purpose of glorifying God fully once again. So is your prayer time, is it filled with asking for things from him? Or is it filled with glorifying him? Avoid praying for things more than you glorify God. And lastly, this kind of goes with slowing down, but find times to step away from the world. Because here's the thing, when we have the world at our fingertips on a phone or a TV, I mean, you're filled with corruption. You're filled with, with this, this motif that is reminding you over and over again, life is meaningless, life is pointless, life is corrupt, life is bitter, life is awful. You're reminded every day when you get a news blast on your phone, when you turn the TV on and you see something terrible has happened again. You're reminded all the time of the meaningless and corruption and, and, and just the, the utter depravity of life. So find time to step away. Because life in this world is meaningless if you don't have Christ, but we do. And we have to find time to remind ourselves that our meaning is in him. And our, our fullness, our, our, our glory, our treasure will be fulfilled in heaven alone where there is no longer any corruption. And if you haven't given your life to Christ, then I'm sorry to say, <laughs> everything is meaningless. Everything is futile. Everything is pointless. If you haven't given your life to Christ, then you're living the secular lens that the teacher is looking through in Ecclesiastes 1 through 11. That's just the simple fact. But when you give your life to him, you will find joy in him no matter what situation you're in. You'll find joy in him even if you don't have a single cent to your name. You'll find joy in him even if your body will never work properly. You'll find joy in him even if you're chained up. But if you don't have him, that hole will never be filled. There will always be an empty void. So this morning, as we close with a time of prayer and, and one last song of worship, I would like to encourage everyone who isn't a believer to give their life, to let their life find meaning in Christ alone. And for those of us that are, remember our joy, our pleasure, our happiness is not dictated by what we're searching for, but by the God who came to us. To live in Christ is gain. To die in him is gain. Let's continually give our lives to him every day. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, your word teaches us the meaningless of looking at life without you. That God, it, it, it is hopeless to live a life where you're not the front and center, when we're not reminded of your love, when we're not reminded of what you've done. 
to live without you is meaningless. To die without you is nothingness. But to live with you is gain. And we'll find joy in this life and completion in the next. And so God, remind us of that this week. Move on the hearts of anyone who has not given their lives to you, who has not found the meaning of life in you. Thank you for the love you have for us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.